Hello and welcome to season two of Refocus, where we talk to artists and music industry professionals about building sustainable careers as creative workers with a focus on folk. I'm your host, Rosalind Dennett. Hello and welcome to Refocus. Doug Cox has been the long-standing producer for the last 28 years of the Vancouver Island Music Fest. In 2017, Doug was inducted into the BC Music Hall of Fame as an industry pioneer. He's performed on a Grammy-nominated album by San Antonio's Los Tex Maniacs, produced a Juno-nominated album for April Virch, and is busy producing projects from his studio on Vancouver Island and is acting theater manager and artistic director for Courtney's iconic Old Church Theater. This is our interview with Doug Cox. Hello, Doug. How are you doing? Hey, Rosalind. Good. It's good to see you. Good to see you, too. Thank you for joining us at what for, for you is an early hour, calling in from, from the West Coast. Yeah, it's a little bit early. It's not too bad. It's, it's quarter to 10 right now, so that's not bad. Well, thank you. I appreciate you taking the time. So we're talking about the art of booking, and you book an absolutely wonderful festival out on Vancouver Island, and I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about it. Tell us about the Vancouver Island Music Fest. Well, it's a festival that's 30 years old this year. It's in the Comox Valley, which is about three hours north of Victoria, or an hour north of Nanaimo for people that know a little bit about the island. It's a multi-genre festival, although we follow the, the sort of traditional folk festival, Canadian folk festival in particular format. So we have six stages. All six of the stages run during the day. One of those stages is an actual workshop stage where people either talk about what they do or we have interviews and that kind of thing. There's a sort of a singer-songwriter stage. I should say that every performer that plays at the festival gets to do their own concert at some point over the weekend. So for single performers or duos, they would probably play on the Woodland stage, which is our smaller performance stage. We have two huge workshop stages where we'll put up to 18 musicians at a time on those stages. And we have two drum kits and two bass rigs that live on those stages. I think that's one of the things that makes us a little bit different. And then we have sort of a band performance stage where we have bands that aren't going to play on our on our concert bowl stage. We'll do their concert in this area called the Grassy Knoll. And then we have our concert bowl stage, which is also our main stage, but we don't like to call it that because that kind of makes it seem like everybody that plays on that stage is more important than everybody else. And uh, that's just not true. We have about 10,000 people a day that attend the festival. And we'd hire 50 to 60 artists every year. And we are a campground festival. So we're just on the outskirts of Courtney. Our population is about 90,000 for the whole Comox Valley where we live here. We have about three to 4,000 campers that hit our campground every year. Half of our campground is volunteer camping and half of our camping is public camping. We have a family camping area as well, which is sort of a kind of a low tolerance safer area. I mean, it's safe everywhere, but um, it's just not a party area. Basically, it's a more quiet area and people respect that. We also, I think, have one of the most beautiful festival sites in the world. I've been fortunate as an artist to get to play a bunch of the festivals and I still have yet to find one that's nicer than ours. One of the things that's really cool about our festival grounds is that each stage really has its own area. So as you move from stage to stage, you almost feel like you're in a completely different place just because 
Some are surrounded by woods. Some are surrounded by fields. One of them's in a great big old barn. One of them's our concert bowl, which is where most of our vendors are. So there's this big circle that embraces the kind of the concert bowl stage. And what happens at night is that everybody comes together into the concert bowl and for the rest of the day, people are all over the site at the different stages. 1,200 volunteers a year, some of which are now triple generation volunteers. So we have grandparents and parents and their kids all volunteering. One of the things I love right now, and we have 40 volunteer crews and a bunch of the people that have been running their crews for basically the whole festival, their kids are now taking over their crews. And that's pretty incredible to watch that happen. We are a family event for sure. And I think because I'm a musician, it's it's kind of a musician's musician's festival. So we might have a few more artists that really focus on their playing. I know other artistic directors probably wouldn't want to hear me say that, but I think <laughs> it might be a little bit true. <laughs> yeah, and it's mostly a roots or folk festival, but we also have jazz. We have classical music. We have rock and roll. We have people like Laurie Anderson, who are really hard mm. to define, um, multi-genre artists. But it's mostly mostly roots music and global music still at the at the festival. That's great. That sounds like a grand old time. So then audience-wise, do a lot of folks travel in to attend the festival or are you drawing from more from the uh, Courtney Comox community? Mostly from the Courtney Comox community. It's probably 50% local and then 30% Vancouver Island and then 20% the rest of the world. So that, that's usually sort of where we land. Cool. And then when you're booking, do you kind of have a, a split in your mind in terms of like how many local acts, how many nearby regional acts or uh, folks across Canada? Do you book international acts as well? Yeah, of course, they don't follow this to the T every year because you have different opportunities every year. But we're usually probably 60, 70% Canadian, of which half is, is local. And by local, I mean British Columbia. And then all over the world as well, we book probably more American artists than people from other parts of the world. But we book people from all over the world too. And that, that changes just based on each year's opportunity. But I do try to very specifically make sure we, we stay close to that percentage for British Columbia artists for sure. And out of that group of people, I try and book a few local people every year. By local, I mean probably more North Vancouver Island. And those are the people that we're trying to mentor, basically. So we bring them in. I mean, we have we have some older performers that, that are world-class performers here, too, and they play as well. But very specifically, I try to book some local newer artists that, that really need the experience of being put on stage with their heroes or just going through the more professional festival experience. I think one of the mistakes that a lot of emerging artists might make is that they get to play their local festivals very specifically for that reason. And then they automatically think that that opens them up to play all the other festivals across the country. Mm. And I think it's important to recognize, you know, without not having total belief in yourself, but I just think it's important to recognize that sometimes you get booked for more regional events because you actually live there. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, it's, it's how we all start, right? So... I've noticed that though too, where like someone that's just really just an emerging performer might be from another part of the country and they think because they've played their local festival that they're now ready to to hit the road and play all of them. You know, and the, we have our own local people that we would favor over that case probably. Although I also try to book one or two every year that are at that stage from different parts of the country. I think it's really important because it's also part of the education and part of the folk process, right? So I try to do that as well. If I find a young artist from, from other parts of the world, mostly Canada, 
then I'll, I'll really make a point of bringing them here and uh, introducing them to the excitement of the whole shebang, right? And I mean, that's that's one of the things I really enjoy about the conferences is I come to FMO and get to see quite a few of those young regional performers from Ontario. You know, I usually end up booking one at least. It's only now percolated in my brain long enough that I can handle this. So 18 performers on one stage? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, 18 performers <laughs> two. Okay. So other than, you know, possibly being a sound technician's worst nightmare, can you like explain a little bit about if one were, were to be booked at the festival and got programmed on, on a stage like that? Well, we have, you know, we have this confusing term of workshops or sessions or, you know, that, that we all like to use at the festivals. I try to look at the performer and see where their strengths are. So sometimes it's a jam session and I'll put together the group of musicians who are, might be more players than, than anything who are capable of sitting in on a big session like that without turning it into a monster, right? Sometimes it's a song circle. So I'll take up to six songwriters and put them on stage together, kind of in the round. They're not really expected to jam. And we tell the performers before they hit the stage, you can invite people to join you if you want, but you can also invite them not to join you if you want. Sometimes it's a experiment where you might take three bands that might have something in common, sort of basis of their music or the roots of their music. This was a fun one, but one time we had eight bass players together for a session. And people remember that one because it was so magical and they were all really good musicians. So they found room for each other. Sometimes those things don't work so well, you know. So that one's one that people really always remember. You know, one time I tried to put on like the, the most epic drum solo I could think of. So I've tried to put Richie Hayward from Little Feet, who's now passed away, and Terry Bozio, who used to play with people like Jeff Beck and, and Neil Pert from Rush. And I thought, you know, what if we just put these three drummers up on the stage for 45 minutes and say, okay, this is like the most epic drum solo of all time. And, wow. and when it's over, it's over. But Neil Pert wouldn't do it so it was unfortunate because the other two guys were actually into the idea it's not all let's get really weird though you know what i mean like mm -hmm. it has to have some sort of musical component to it that's actually going to create some kind of collaboration that makes sense so i've been in a few sessions like that where it feels like the person that's programming is just thinking let's just make this as weird as we possibly can and that doesn't always work, you know. So it is really fun to put musicians together who are really good and, and just say, okay, I know that this band is going to blow this band's mind and to watch what happens, you know, when that happens. One time we had Bill Frizzell and David Lindley at the festival and they had played together on numerous recordings, but they'd never actually played together. So wow. I asked them if they would just jam just the two of them on one of the stages and they both agreed because they both really admired each other. And the funny thing that happened was that just before the festival, David Lindley phoned me and and uh, we're kind of friends and said, you know, I'm not really so sure about this. Like he was getting nervous about it, right? And I said, oh, David, Bill's going to be so disappointed. And so he said, okay, I'll do it. And then funny enough, a few days later, Bill Frizzell's people phoned and they said the same thing. Bill's a little bit nervous. <laughs> and that. So I said, okay, well, you know, David will be so disappointed. So they ended up doing it. <laughs> Just before they got up on the stage, we had a budget truck parked backstage, which was a gear truck, basically. And they went and they sat in the back of the budget truck and rehearsed for about 45 minutes, which I have some photos of. And it's it's one of my favorite photos oh, cool. from the festival. <laughs> sometimes it's a jam. Sometimes it's a song circle. Sometimes it's it's more of a sharing where people just take turns with the jams. But it often turns into magic, you know, and, and I think it's 
for a lot of people, it's the most exciting part of the festival. I think about half of our audience comes to the festival because they just want to discover. And then maybe 25% come because they want to see the headliners. And then the other 25% come because they just want to be part of the community and that the music isn't even really the most important part of why they're attending. I think that more of our volunteers come, probably half of our volunteers, if not more, come because they want to be part of the community. And the music isn't necessarily the most important thing for them either, you know. So for me, that's hard to believe because that's why I'm there, you know, but (laughs) that's not all true. But I don't think everybody's there just for the music either. They're there for the whole experience, right? Oh, absolutely. It sounds like you've built a really incredible community that's been created there. You mentioned like discovery, and I'm wondering if we can chat a bit about like how you discover new music and new bands. Do you go to a lot of conferences? Where Where do you usually find new music? Everywhere. I mean, I do. I do go to quite a few conferences. I, I before the pandemic, I was going to a lot. I just went to five in three months, so I'm done with conferences for right now. But I also, I mean, I'm old enough and have been involved in this long enough to know that the early artistic directors, people like Gary Crystal from Vancouver, Don Whalen from Edmonton, who was my mentor, Mitch Podolik, used to actually go into the woods literally to find musicians and artists and I, I really believe in that you know there's music everywhere i like to think of myself as a curator of the festival which means i don't want to just go to an industry event and be told who to hire nor do i want our festival to have the same bands that are playing every single festival across the country which is right at this moment it's it's a little bit of a concern for me because i'm for some reason the word's gotten out that all the festivals block book <laughs> which means that that we all sign on to the same artists to make tours possible for them. And I do believe in some of that, and we definitely do some of that. But I don't like looking at the lineups of the festivals all across the country and basically seeing the same lineup. You know, I, I think that we can do better than that. And I also think if you program one band in particular, you might want to look at that band and go, okay, what can this band contribute to that's very cool? That means I could book somebody else specifically for the collaborative part of what might happen at the festival. I have a radio show as well. It's a it's a syndicated radio show, so I have to program two hours of music every week on that. So I'm always looking for music for that too. I'm a total music-aholic, so I listen to music all the time. I do believe as well that you don't know when you're going to discover something that really moves you. It usually just comes up and grabs you by the heart, right? That doesn't necessarily always happen at a conference either because you're so overwhelmed as everyone is with all of the music that you see. It's not really a natural way to discover the beauty of art, which is, in my mind, takes a certain amount of stillness. For me to accept something coming at me, I need to be in a place where things are a little bit still. And the bad part of the conferences, and I don't know how you get around this, is that you're running from room to room to room to try to catch as many things as you can. So you might go see one song from somebody and then run to the next room. And that that's not really a natural way to discover music. You know, I understand it is the only way to do it at those things. And it, and it makes it work for everybody. And Usually, though, what it does for me is it helps me see where I want to dig a little deeper, or it just mm. might, for the time being, allow me to cross somebody off my list too, which is just as valuable, right? As I grew older, I realized though that that's not something that you necessarily want to hold on to forever, right? So you might see an artist, and they might not be right for you, or they might not be right for what you're booking. Don't write them off for the rest of their lives, though. You know, when I was younger, I did do that. I would see somebody. Mm. And, 
basically go, okay, big X, right? And then run to the next band. And, and unfortunately for those people, I might not look at them again for another five or six years, you know, which is kind of unfair. Again, the good that comes from those things is outweighs that for sure. You know, I do think that the communal aspect of a conference is just as important and the, all the other lessons are just as important, right? And I think it truly is relevant to this conversation because for somebody who might have gotten, maybe there's somebody who who has applied to play Vancouver Island Music Fest and has gotten rejected and might be feeling like, oh no, I'll never play it again. Right. And, and it's it's actually really encouraging to hear your journey with that and that people do change their minds. I mean, I find music everywhere. And I'm also, I think I'm like an amateur musicologist too. So I am always reading books about the history of music, mostly just out of interest, but also because as a musician, a producer, it's my job and my passion. So that'll lead me down a lot of rabbit holes too. As I read autobiographies and music history books, I have my my Apple play right there beside me and I'm searching every record they're talking about and I'm following the, the paths of the history of the different musicians and stuff. I mean, I'm a total nerd when it comes to that stuff, right? That's 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 where my passion is, really. I also do believe someone once said to me that every single person in your audience wants to see themselves on stage, which which is something that I hold really dear to my heart. And I know that there's holes in my programming on certain years where I will very specifically be looking for one thing or someone from a specific culture or that kind of a thing, not to tick off boxes, I don't agree with that at all. I do look at things that way, though, at times, but more specifically because it fits into the programming for that given year. So that'll lead you down different rabbit holes, too, where you're you're looking for one very specific thing, and sometimes an artist will approach you, and you've already filled that spot that they fit into for that year, or you just don't feel that they could become part of the overall program for that year, right? I'll often tell artists, you know, that when you're approaching anyone with your music, they might book you three, four, five, six years down the line, right? I mean, you're probably hoping for that year, but the reality is that that doesn't necessarily always happen. But don't ever think that disqualifies you, right? Also, in the new world, which is like the last 10 years, we get so many people approaching us now as artistic directors that it is so overwhelming that if you can do anything to actually get your music into that person's collection. I think that that strategy is super critical and it's almost become lost because everybody sends out one song now or one video. You know, you might come back and ask to hear more at that point, but that's taking a lot more energy than than uh, actually just right away falling in love with someone's work completely. So I guess what I'm trying to say is you want everyone who's going to support your music to be actually become a fan of what you do and to like it so much that they become knowledgeable about it. Very importantly, you want to end up in their personal collection of music so that they listen to you. So, you know, you mentioned that that you get a lot of people vying for for your attention. Do you have like an open submission process for the festival? How do folks express their interest in playing? I actually don't. I mean, if you go to our website, you'll see that it we don't accept unsolicited submissions. And there's a long explanation there as to why we don't. It's not because we think we're important. You know what I mean? Like it's not a it's not a snobby thing, and it's not a because I think I'm so great and Mr. Artistic Director. It's it's got nothing to do with that. The actual fact is I don't want to lie to you and tell you that I'm gonna have time to actually go listen to your music. I don't know this, but I suspect there's a number of festivals that take submissions and don't even look at them. There's no way they can anymore. 
unless they hire someone full-time to do that, right? So rather than lie and say, here's the non-existent email address that no one checks that you can send your stuff to, I'd rather just say, you know what, that, that doesn't work for our festival. That doesn't work for me. How do you reach me? I mean, people in the business know how, or they know someone that knows how. I'm always looking. If you send me your music, I will check it out, but it might take me six months to do so, right? I have this huge folder where I'm I'm always saving things, right? And I'm all, I am always actually checking them out, but I don't want that responsibility or that false hope of saying, you send this in and you're going to have the full attention because it doesn't work that way anymore. I mean, that's, that's a, it's a hard answer. Well, I mean, another part of that answer is that, I mean, you just said that he went to five conferences this fall. So, yeah. you know, I feel like that's a really important thing to highlight because, you know, any one of those five would probably be a great opportunity to get in front of you and say, hey. Yeah. And it's just like a an organic process, you know, where you just keep doing what you do and, and work, follow your own path as an artist. And hopefully there will be enough people that like what you do and continue to support you that this, I mean, you can tell I'm from the West Coast here, but <laughs> it's walking down that path that is hopefully what is the joy of your experience as as any sort of an artist and walking through the doors that open rather than trying to kick all the doors open and be really aggressive and unhappy because you're over here but you want to be over there and you're never you're never going to enjoy your yourself as an artist if you're always looking over there going oh I just want to be over there right that's and I'm saying that as an artist too because I spent years in my own career as a musician being that way realizing well I was doing the most amazing things all over the world and I wasn't enjoying them because I was looking at my daytime ring going where am I tomorrow or how do I get this you know and not not going wait a minute this is this is it this process of me playing my instrument and getting to walk through whatever doors that open to me is is really all there is you know so how do you get into all of this stuff you just you just do it and and open those doors and my strategy at the conferences I mean I wear numerous hats right in the industry but um my strategy has always been to go there and and discover what opportunities do present themselves rather than going there with a strategy to only have very specific opportunities and not be pleased if, if those things don't happen. And I think that that's something you, as you get older, that you you become way more aware of as well. Is I have never gone to a music conference taking my festival hat off now for a minute as an artist or as a side person or a front person or whatever sound getting music into soundtracks and not had three or four amazing things happen just from simply sitting in the restaurant and meeting somebody or having a conversation with someone in an elevator you just choose to engage and be an honest part of that community and you're going to meet people that are going to make things happen for you that feels better i think than uh desperately being out there pushing yourself right the other thing that's really important to me is what kind of a person you are the way that i look at our festival it's for the volunteers first it's for our community second, which means our sponsors, our audience members, our board of directors, is for the musicians third. So I look at you and I go, okay, I, I love what you do. I can fit you into the programming really well. Now, what's it going to be like when someone comes up to you and says, hello, you know, are you going to give them the time of day? Are you going to share the stage gracefully with other artists? Is this about you or are you actually wanting to come and take part in, in this gathering, right? That's where a lot of people blow it. You know, if you're appearing to be so hungry about pursuing your own musical career that you forget that the person on the receiving end is also a human being, then, or if you're a jerk, I don't care how good you are. You're just, 
you know, you're just off the list. That's also probably when I'd cross somebody off for quite a long time. So one of the real benefits as a presenter to come to the conferences is you actually get to meet the artists and watch them interact with people. And that's so important. It's about the community that are putting the event on first. You're inviting them into your home, you know, with all the people that you really care about. You're invited to Christmas dinner. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a beautiful analogy. Yeah. It's why I think our festival has been healthy for all these years. It's why we still have no problem getting 1,200 volunteers every year. Hmm. You know, it's not, it's not an issue. I don't think that's a given. You know, that's a real conscious choice. I remember that being like, you know, back in, you mentioned earlier, Mitch Podolik. And, you know, I remember talking to Mitch ages ago and him explaining the concept of the, the Winnipeg Folk Festival backstage at the time where he was like the person who's playing the main stage waits in the same line as the person who's picking up the garbage after everyone <laughs> leaves from the main stage, you know, and those two people should be able to stand in a line together and, and have a chat, right? And I always thought that was such a beautiful thing. Yeah, that's changed a little bit with some of the headliners. We have kind of an emergency crew of volunteers, four or five people who, when performers arrive, we identify the problem once and we put that crew mm -hmm on those performers, basically almost to the degree where we say, okay, we don't want these people to come into contact with anyone else because we don't want their, their weekend ruined because they've met one of their heroes and he's a jerk. So we do, we actually have a kind of a, a crew that just does that work, right? It usually only happens once or twice a year where we get someone who's really difficult. Most of the time, it's not even the performer, it's their road manager, it's their crew hmm. who are really problems, you know. And so we, we isolate those people and move them away from what we think of as the festival. And honestly, it's their loss, you know. They can come in and do what they do and then get rid of them as soon as we possibly can, but they're missing completely what they're coming for. I want to say also, so I don't forget this, and this is more practical advice, when you apply to play at our festival, it really helps me to know what you can do beyond your performance, beyond your concert. The artists that are able to list the other things they can do to contribute to the event are giving themselves a huge step up, right? Good example, Tennyson King, who's a wonderful Asian-Canadian artist, came up to me and told me he could do a meditation through music session. That was like, wow, okay, this is showing that this guy actually really wants to engage in the festival, not just sell CDs, right? Which everybody does anyways, but... If all you can do is tell me you want to play your concert, then go play a concert. Don't come to a festival. That's that's not really what festivals are, are all about, you know. People's managers might argue with that. But. <laughs> <laughs> but let's help some folks out, though, in that. So you mentioned that there's like a stage that does teaching workshops. So if somebody imagined like a skill they can share on that, you mentioned the meditation. Do you have like a, a children's or like a family family area? We, we have a kid's area, but it's an activity area. I don't like to put children's music in a different place. I think kids are smarter than that. So we will have children's performers, but we don't isolate them. They're just part of the festival. You might want to teach a vocal harmony class. You might want to teach a bluegrass mandolin class or, you know, so it's all over the map. But if I'm piqued in interest in your music and I look at what you have and you, you have a list of these really amazing things that you can do otherwise that's what makes the festival right or if you have a really great collaborative idea that's never happened before if you say i really want to do this with these people if it's early enough or it might check be, be something that we'd work on a year or two down the line that also shows that you know what you're coming to instead of just being another gig so just about anything works in that capacity right 
And it helps me as a programmer do something that's much more festival friendly because you're already going to get your concert, right? So Yeah, I wish that there was a way for like listing the, the instruments and the musicians and like indicating that you can jam or you're able to improvise on people's music. You might be able to pick that out too, just from seeing them or hearing them. But I always think that's an interesting anecdote to add. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really important. Mm -hmm. You know, the thing that's funny to me about the conferences is that we're all basically introverts. You know, I'm actually really a shy person. On stage, I'm fine, but put me in a room full of people and I'm a total klutz and uncomfortable <laughs> and introverted. Most artists are that way as well. So we all come together in these things and we're all like introverts. And it's uh, one of the hardest things to, to approaching any human being is that you come across as being sincere and not overly hungry. When you've spent all this money to go to a conference and, and you're there to try to make things happen, that's a real struggle because you have to somehow figure out how to approach people, but in a way that is natural. And, and again, some people are really good at that, you know, pressing flesh or whatever you want to call it, where they run around and they, they manage to make contact with everybody. I'm not one of those people. And I'm a person where I'll, I'll have to engage in the conference for about an hour and then go hide for about 20 minutes and then come back out. And, and I think that most of us are actually like that. And I don't have an answer to that, but I think it's uh, something to really be aware of and be really careful that the energy that you're putting out isn't really fake because you, you're simply trying. And I, I think it's something that's not addressed enough. You know, how do we actually contact each other as sincere human beings in a way that isn't gross and, and uh, manipulative, you know? At the music conferences in particular, I do not know what the answer is. But <laughs> oh my gosh, I don't know either. But I think it was at this FMO that somebody had a, a t-shirt that said, don't approach the introvert. On yeah. That like. yeah, it's an interesting, I really feel for the people who are trying to be that kind of extroverted though, because they think that that's what's expected of them, you know, when truly just being chill and having regular paced conversation with folks is usually what's most effective. Yeah. And I, I guess part of it is, is coming up with your own kind of posse too at those things, right? Like everybody's got their own little social circle. As an introvert, it's way easier to be part of one of those circles. And then you will meet everybody introduces everybody to everybody else. And you do find people that you just have a connection with, right? I mean, I, I've noticed with myself, and I, I hesitate to say this because I don't want this to the people to think that they should just come up and do this. But sometimes I'll really connect with an artist because we start talking about guitars or studios or or what have you, right? Songwriting or whatever, anything. And then there's other people you make a connection with because you're not talking about music. Maybe you're talking about whatever else you do, you know? Those kind of things are really important at these conferences too because it's almost like you've met an, an oasis person when that does happen. Like, oh my God, someone I can actually have a conversation with, you know, is, is a great thing too. So, so how do you approach an artistic director? We're all different. We're all looking for different things. You come to the conferences to do that. Most of us hopefully are accessible at those things. I, I try very hard to be, I try to be respectful about not talking outside of showcase rooms and stuff, but at the same time, Usually when we're talking outside of the showcase rooms, we're actually talking about who we just saw or we're comparing notes about who's touring or we're doing business, right? So that's hard too, because if I see somebody that I really like at a conference, I'll make a point of trying to set up enough gigs for them that I immediately can book them. So it might look like we're just hanging out and partying. Sometimes we are, but 
I think we've also become aware that we need to be more careful. And, and uh, it's not like most of us are drunk hanging out in the hallways or that kind of thing, because that's not really the case. You know, we're there to serve the music. Um, and if any artistic director is arrogant enough to think that we're not, it's part of the problem with the, the current music industry. It's almost like the industry's more important than the artists. That's a big mistake as well. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people make money off of the music business. And a lot of people don't remember Spotify that um, it's very important that the artists make their money too. <laughs> don't eat your children, Spotify. right? <laughs> Yeah. Well, oh, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more there. Well, first of all, thank you for spending some time talking to us today. It's been it's been really fantastic. And I'm wondering before we go, if we can just let us know like maybe like what your dates are this year. Just let us know a little bit about the festival that's coming up this summer. Yeah, our dates are July twelfth to fourteen. We are in a community where it's fairly hard to get hotel rooms. We have a shortage of hotel rooms, which is a real problem for where we are. There's lots of Airbnbs. We have our campground, which goes on sale March the 1st, and that usually sells out within about 24 hours. There's other campgrounds in the area. So people coming to the festival, one of our problems is is that we, we do have a fairly low amount of available hotel rooms. Like everywhere in the world, two of our hotels have turned into low-income housing. And one mm. of our hotels has half turned into seniors housing. So it's it's becoming a, a concern for us. You know, how do you host a huge event when there's nowhere for people to go? <laughs> but there is. You just have to look a little bit more, you know. So mm -hmm. if you want to come just attend the festival, consider that. Make sure that you have your accommodations figured out. Fantastic. Well, Doug, thank you so much. I really appreciate getting to chat with you today. Thanks, Rosalind. It's good to talk to you. That's all for this episode, friends. The Refocus podcast is brought to you by Folk Music Ontario. Find out more by heading to folkmusicontario.org slash refocus. That's R-E-F-O-L-K-U-S. The podcast is produced by Kayla Nizon and Rosalind Dennett and mixed by Jordan Moore at the Pod Cabin. The opening theme is by King Cardiac and the artwork is by Jamie Karn. Please give us a download, a like, subscribe, rate, and review to let us know you're listening. Until next time... Keep on folkin' in the free world. <laughs>